how thankful each of us no doubt can be for the fact that we have been blessed and permitted to assemble and to gather. We just prayed in so much thanksgiving in light of that very fact and what a wonderful sentiment it is. For so many would wish to be here, but for reasons perhaps beyond their control, they cannot be, and yet you and I have been so blessed in this regard. Let me also say again to, to the ladies, don't forget about the ladies' Bible class uh, day after tomorrow, 6 o'clock on Tuesday. And I know you'll have a very enthralling study about authority and some matters touching the last lesson in that book. And certainly keep that in mind on your calendar and come and be, be a part of that if at all you can. Tonight we come to another lesson that this is the fifth installment this year in which we have considered questions and answers on one of the Sunday evening lessons. And as always, these are things that, that have been pr provided to me. In essence, you have chosen the topics that are part of the lesson tonight. And in so doing, it's merely our regard to use the Word of God, perhaps as this next slide would indicate, in an effort to try and answer some questions that perhaps are of great practical interest to someone. I do not know who authors these questions, and so in fact, I'm very thankful for that. In that as we address them, it's not our goal to select anybody, but rather in an effort to allow the Bible to speak to each of us. With that said, why don't we get into then our first question that we'll consider this evening. And that question is the following. Did those who spoke in tongues understand what they were saying? And could they understand those who spoke that language if they asked questions? Isn't that a good question? Would you please be turning with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14? And we will use one of the verses near the outset of that chapter in an effort to provide at least some guidance on this question. The entirety of the matter of speaking in tongues, as you and I have often noted, is a matter of intense investigation within the pages of the New Testament. For after all, even on the day of Pentecost, of course, the Holy Spirit came upon those apostles in verses 1 to 4 of that chapter, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, verse 4 tells us. And then later on, as Paul directed an extensive correspondence to the church in Corinth, he had much to say in regard to this very thing. You'll notice on that slide, in verses... I'm sorry, in chapter 12, just perhaps a couple of chapters before where you now are, you'll notice that beginning in verse 7 it says, "...but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy." to another discerning of spirits, to another divers' kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. And we have this inspired listing, then there were those in that first century upon whom hands had been laid, and one of the gifts that was thus passed on in that fashion were there were those who were able to speak in a language that they had never studied, one that they had never learned, they had never had any exposure to it in fact. And yet they were equipped with the capability of speaking fluently in that language. And so the question before us again is, did those who spoke in tongues understand what they were saying? Given that here's an individual now speaking in a language that that person had never learned, had never had any exposure to it, could that person even understand 
what it was that was being spoken by them. In chapter 14, verse number 2, we encounter this particular statement. For he that speaketh in a tongue, or in an unknown tongue, speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him. Howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. It seems as though the latter part of that verse indicates then that as the Spirit filled the individual and directed him in the language that he was speaking, it would seem from the latter part of that verse even he didn't understand thoroughly everything that he in fact was saying. It was a matter of the Spirit. Remember, it says the Spirit gave them the utterance to speak these things. You'll notice furthermore it goes on to say, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men. Now that doesn't mean that men couldn't understand, but rather what that verse tells us is that as the individual was speaking in a tongue, the thrust and the characteristic of it was provided by God. It's not that this was something he was learning himself how to do. He instantly was able to speak with the characteristic of these languages. That would seem then, as far as I'm able to tell, the closest to answering the question that the querist has asked. But maybe with that in mind, as you continue to study that, you'll notice many other things in that chapter are said about it. Could I at least invite each of us to note this? In verses 27 and following of that same chapter, the individuals who were able to speak in these tongues did have full and complete control over them. In other words, you did not simply come into some ecstatic sense in which you couldn't help yourself and you beginning to blurt through these languages without any control by you. That's not the case. Paul, in fact, said, if there's no interpreter, the person needs to stay quiet. If there's no one there to interpret that language, then that person, though the gift he may have, needed to stay quiet. That, again, seems very different than some of what you and I seemingly hear said today. Let's move on to the second question. This question reads as follows. Some people teach that Phoebe, in Romans 16, verses 1 and following, was a deaconess, much like a man might serve officially in the capacity as a deacon. Was there an office of a deaconess authorized in the New Testament? Please explain. Another very good question. The consideration of a deaconess. Let's be turning to Romans 16 and refer to the very passage that was mentioned by the person who wrote the question. The first two verses of Romans 16 read as follows. I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church which is at Sincrea, that ye receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. For she hath been a succorer of many, and of myself also. If I may perhaps elaborate a bit on verse 2. Already Paul has made note of a lady named Phoebe. No question that that was a female person. And as he describes her in verse number 2, note again that he says, You make sure to help her in whatever way she has need of you. Many have taken that then seemingly to explain this. Well, apparently she was in a role of a deacon, so that whatever demand she had made of others, be they men or women, they would be obligated, according to Paul, 
to in fact give her the assistance that she asked. And therefore, isn't this a deaconess position? The person again is asking a very good question. Let's consider some things rather notably. First of all, where do they get the idea that she perhaps, in their thinking at least, was a deaconess? In verse number 1, the word that the inspired the Apostle Paul used was this, Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant. She's called a servant. It is in fairness to note that the Greek word that appears there is the word diakonos. It's the same word, admittedly, that in many other ways does find interpretation in the word deacon. In fact, as you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, you'll notice that, in fact, the qualifications of deacons are listed, and they are the qualifications of the diakonos, the deacons. And so it may appear at first sight that perhaps this person has a good argument. Maybe there was a female set of deacons that might well have been called deaconesses until we continue our study perhaps a little bit further. As is true of many words in the New Testament, those words can be employed in a slightly different fashion. And may I say that the word servant, the word diakonos, rather powerfully fits into that category. In fact, would you note some of these things with me? That Greek word diakonos is used in a number of rather powerful passages. And let me just select a few of them. In John chapter 2, verse number 5, here was the case that Jesus turned water into wine. You may remember though, early in that saga, Mary came to the Lord and thus made some request of Him. And you may remember that to those servants was said, whatever He says to you, do it. May I ask about those servants? Same Greek word, diakonos. Were they all women? Were some of them men? The fact is that word diakonos is used with respect to males, it's used with respect to females. Anybody that's a servant of Jesus Christ is a diakonos. That would be all of us. And therefore, in the broad sense, that word just means anybody that in fact has invested in him or herself as a follower of and a disciple of and a servant of Jesus Christ. Another example of the word used in that way, 2 Corinthians eleven fifteen, Very broadly utilized as anyone who is a servant of Jesus. But the New Testament is also very clear that there is a rather specific sense in which that word can be used. May I direct your attention to Philippians 1 verse 1. As Paul addressed the church in Philippi, he wrote that letter, and as a part of it, opening the address, he said, to the bishops and to the deacons. To the bishops and to the diakonos. But now I thought, oh, every Christian is a diakonos in at least one sense. But that wasn't what Paul had in mind. There was an office, a particular office that was being addressed. And later on in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 and following, we find that there are qualifications for those who would occupy that office. And you and I remember well what some of them are. One thing, he's got to be the husband of one wife. That rules out women. This office then that's under consideration is such that it is an office in the church. It is to be highly regarded in those in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13, occupied a rather powerful and wonderfully blessed position. 
but it was not a position that a female was able to occupy. Phoebe was not an official deaconess in that sense. Was she a servant of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. In the same way that all of us are. And so as you and I close that one, we realize then today there is no office of a deaconess authorized within the pages of the New Testament. Men have to go beyond the Word of God in order to make any such claim. And to go beyond the Word of God, one forfeits Jesus. 2 John verses 9-11 through 11 tells us. And so let's move on to question 3. In addition to these two, here's another good question. The Bible teaches that in assemblies, women are not to usurp authority over men. All Christians, including women, are commanded to be servants. We just noted that in a way. And now the question, would it be acceptable for a woman to serve at the Lord's table so long as she does not preside? Isn't that a good question? Every single Sunday, we thrill at the thought of the partaking of the Lord's Supper. And you and I realize here at Pippin, we exclusively utilize male Christians in order to do this. The person who's asked the question did so very appropriately. Now, we know that women are, in fact, not to usurp authority over the men, and they're to keep silent in the assembly. So what if a woman were to merely serve at the Lord's table, just not be the person leading the prayer, or not being in any way the individual presiding? Would it be acceptable in that case? That question has been one that has certainly been some element in trouble, in that it has been an issue of some controversy and concern. Let's be turning to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And let's allow the Word of God at least to offer some direction in an effort to make consideration of this question. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Beginning in verse number 11, we encounter the following wording. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man. But to be in silence, for Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. And perhaps in light of that, we can at least revisit some of these considerations. Without doubt, you and I regard the Lord's Supper in exactly the way that the New Testament presents it. It's a vital part of the worship. It is one of the five authorized acts of worship. It's a very solemn occasion in which one goes back to the scene of the cross. Jesus said, This do in remembrance of me. Later Paul reiterated that in 1 Corinthians 11. It is in that connection, starting in Acts chapter 2, we notice that in verse 42 it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. That phrase, breaking of bread, is a reference to the observance of the Lord's Supper. Those first century Christians very carefully and yet very remarkably saw fit to observe it. In Acts chapter 20 verse 7, there when Paul had arrived at the city of Troas, it says, the disciples came together on the first day of the week. Why? To celebrate the Lord's Supper. To break bread. It was a time of great encouragement a time of strength, not drawn from strength within ourselves, but drawn from the strength of association to the one who died for us. 
as you and I step then through some of the thoughts of that slide clearly, it's case that in, in the initial establishment of that Lord's Supper, on the night prior to the Lord's crucifixion, certainly only men served it there because that's all that was present, Jesus and, of course, the, 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 the twelve apostles. But this question is a bit different than that. As you and I reflect upon the observance of that Lord's Supper, consider with me some of these thoughts. Let's retrace the scene of 1 Timothy 2. Again, it says, verse 12, I suffer not a woman to teach. What is it then that a female Christian is not permitted to do by God? To teach. And out to the right, I've asked you to notice the very word behind that is this word didosko, to deliver a didactic discourse. It requires audible, the audible expression of one's voice. The woman is not to usurp authority over the man. Same way. In that, it appears to involve an audible expression of her authority or power over the male present. But did you notice there is yet another one? Although those two involved a vocal consideration, verse number 11 mentions another one. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. The Greek word that's translated silence has nothing directly at least to do with vocal expression. I would submit it would seem to me at least that one aids us to answering her question. She doesn't have to say anything. If she occupies a position that involves a vocal expression or not, in such a way that it might be perceived or taken as an element of authority over the man, she's not to do it. I'd submit that perhaps some careful thought by an eldership ought to be certainly in order before one would make that decision, based, if nothing else, on verse 11 of 1 Timothy 2. As you and I close that slide, it would then at least seem to me it would be a bit unwise to invite a female to do this. Not the least of which for this reason, but also for the considerations touching the other manner of the principle that's behind what is here. Now perhaps some of those others will be for a time and a place of more extensive consideration, but for now, let's move on to question number four. Another very good question. The question reads as follows, Will God love the people in hell after the day of judgment? Very simply put, will God love the people in hell after the day of judgment? Isn't that a very thoughtful question? You'll notice on the slide, one of the things we immediately deduce from the New Testament is that God is love. 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8 paint that picture in a dramatic way and in a very touching way. In fact, the lesson for us is if we love not, then we cannot be of God, for He is love. But in addition to that one, would you know with me 2 Corinthians 13, 14? In the last verse of that 2 Corinthian epistle, an interesting reference to each member of the Godhead occurs. The Holy Spirit's mentioned. God the Son is mentioned, God the Father is mentioned, and the singular attribute of the Father which is highlighted is His love. Without doubt, God is love. That's the thing which identifies Him most carefully above all other attributes. 
But with that in mind, look at this. One of the things that our world has so often attempted to do is to divorce the concept of judgment from that of love, as if you can't possibly be both at the same time. If you're loving, you can't be harsh and judgmental. And on the other hand, if you're harsh and judgmental, then at least in the mind of many, you clearly are not loving. That's a mistake on the part of men. That's a serious mistake on the part of the human family, at least in many ways. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, verse number 2, the very same God who is the God known for love is also that God who by character and nature is respectful of judgment, is respectful of that which is His judgment and the truth that would go along with it. With that in mind, look then at this truth. God's judgment is always right, and it's always correct. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Ask rhetorically in Genesis 18.25, reminding those of that day, and you and I as well, that His judgment will invariably be correct, and it will be invariably on target. That allows us, then it would seem, to close this slide. I believe in our better moments, we also know it well. It is entirely possible, and in fact, not that infrequent, when judgment and punishment goes hand in hand with love. Any parent knows this well. When you have to discipline your, ch your child, and it hurts you far more than them, but they don't believe that. And when the day comes that they become a parent, then they finally understand but you did it out of love. You didn't want their behavior to ever do that again. And you acted in such a way, bringing an element of pain to them, but yet much more to you. And yet our God is not only perfect love, but perfect judgment. And that perfection leads us, it would seem, to answer this question. Our God is love. He has always been love, and He will always be love, even after the day of judgment. The fact that these individuals chose to disregard the sacrifice of Jesus and chose to die distance from Him, that wasn't God's fault. Even to this day when a child chooses to behave in a way that the parents have so often instilled something different in them and then they still act in this very unfortunate way, it doesn't mean the parents stop loving them. It only means, of course, that that love takes a different venue. It takes a different approach. So too it shall be on the day of judgment. Hell is the statement of God's wrath. It does not in any way set aside His love, and that was a really good question. Let's look at question number five. This question takes us to Matthew 27. If you would be turning to that second to the last chapter in Matthew's Gospel account, and let's notice one of the statements that is made on that occasion. The question reads as follows. The Bible states that when Jesus died, the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints came forth after His resurrection. What was the timing involved in this, and what actually happened? Reading in Matthew chapter 27, let me begin reading in verse 50. Jesus, when He had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. 
And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept rose, and came out of the graves after His resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. The question has basically centered on the prepositional phrase, after His resurrection. Let's step our way through those verses in the following way. First of all, our Savior at this moment was hanging on the cross, and the six hours was almost up. The last three hours had been in complete darkness. The world was engulfed in the darkness representative of the sin and shame that the human family was committing, putting to death the perfect Son of God. And then in verse 50 it says, When Jesus had cried again with a loud voice, He yielded up the ghost. That means He passed away. And verse 51 says these remarkable events corresponded in time. It says, The veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. You and I likely could quickly pass through that and not fail to appreciate the full significance of it. We would have to do justice to that by by revisiting Exodus chapters 25 to 27. In those set of chapters, we have a description of that veil that hung between the most holy place and the holy place. And therefore, it separated those two arenas inside the temple complex, even in the time of Jesus. But over the course of time, and as you and I reflect upon the reading in Exodus, we learn something remarkable. That curtain, if you please, that veil as it's herein described, was not like a curtain that might be in your living room or ours. It wasn't like a small cloth that might well be hanging over a window in your house or mine. This curtain likely was about that thick. It was extraordinarily heavy. It weighed hundreds of pounds. It was supported in a very dramatic and powerful way by appropriately labeled hooks, if you please, that were far in the air. This is not something that any human could easily have torn. The strongest man on earth couldn't have torn it. And did you notice here, it's not that it was just ripped slightly. It was completely torn in two from top to bottom. And remember, the top was somewhere on the order of 20 feet in the air. Nobody could reach up there. And yet, the text says that not only did that occur, but that the earth did quake and the rocks rent. A mighty earthquake happened simultaneously. And it is in that connection, verse 52 says, And the graves were opened. At the cemetery, there were graves, if you please, that were opened. And the verse goes on to say, And many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Might you and I take note? There wasn't a general resurrection of everybody. In fact, there wasn't even a wide-scale resurrection of everybody. It was only saints. Those who had committed themselves into the servitude of the God of heaven, many of them arose. But may we ask when? It says, verse 53, "...and came out of the graves..." So there's the phrase, "...came out of the graves after His resurrection." So although those events that took place when the Lord died on Thursday, some of those things like the earthquake and the, and the rending of that particular veil, 
But you notice there were some continuing effects, for it was not until Sunday and the days following when the graves were opened and the bodies of the saints arose, some of them at least. You may notice in that connection what an overwhelming sense of assurance and evidence that would have been. Can you imagine if you had, for instance, had a family member who had loved the Lord and yet that person's body had been buried only a couple of weeks earlier and now you see them again walking around and you're able to converse with them? You may notice on the slide, the text says that these went into the holy city and appeared to many. They went into Jerusalem. It might do us well to notice that these saints that arose on this fashion, this was not the final resurrection for them. They would die again. They would die again. Jesus was the first to rise to never die again. And in so doing, His resurrection then is in many ways the prototype for all of ours. We look forward to when the Lord comes back. No matter how long we will have been dead, perhaps, we too will rise and it's our intent to never die again. For we want to go to heaven. And Revelation 20 says we won't be subject to the second death if we have, if we have arisen faithfully. And so as you and I answer that question, merely it related to the timetable. It was after the Sunday of the Lord's resurrection when these were also resurrected. We don't know how many days thereafter. It may apparently have been many continuing days thereafter. But what a great witness that must have been. Question six. This question is a bit lengthier. It reads as follows. Many in the religious world today try to use Acts 10.43 and Romans 10 verses 9 to 13 to try to teach belief alone for salvation. Even many people that we come into contact with as Christians also try to argue about a topic like this one. What would be some passages to rightly divide to defeat the argument of belief alone for salvation, incorporating baptism without arguing disputing, but in a way to try and bring individuals like these to the truth? It wouldn't be a bad idea to just turn and read Acts 10.43 that's the verse that this individual mentioned in, in the question. The scene involved there was the household of Cornelius. And the verse reads as follows. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any one or can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. It likely is the case, as you reflect upon that passage with me, that reference was made in verses 45 and 46 to those who believed. And it is true that many are very quick to say, look, these believed, they were able to speak in tongues and they weren't baptized till later. So do we really need to be baptized today? Some are quick to ask. It probably is true that if you enter into a discussion with someone 
on a topic like this one, this passage is not going to be the first one to help answer all the questions in a way that will be clear. There are too many things going on. Think about the matters involved. First, this was the miraculous matter in that there were those speaking in tongues. That was something different. Furthermore, this was the first occasion in all of human history when Gentiles were admitted into the church. That made it unique. We ought not expect then this to be a pattern in every regard for the manner in which individuals are able to become a Christian today. Now certainly it's important and rightly interpreted. It offers no challenge. But with all those things involved, it makes this passage by itself, at least for someone unfamiliar with the Bible and many of its particulars, it might be a challenging one to utilize first. On the slide, I would ask you to perhaps think with me about this. If we were to make consideration, we certainly would do well, just like Gideon did in our Bible study class this morning, to at least compliment the individual by asserting to them the necessity of belief. There's no question how important belief is. It's just that we would want to rightly divide the manner in which that belief appears and what that belief will make possible. In Hebrews 11 verse 6 it says, But without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. It would seem then to me in that light that there would be some other passages that might perhaps be quicker to at least bring some question into the mind of the person with whom you're speaking. Could we begin in John 12, verse 42? In that passage, we read this. Keep in mind, as we're thinking about the matter of belief, listen to what the Holy Spirit says about it here. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on Him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess Him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Did you notice? Here was somebody that believed, but they didn't confess. That should immediately implant in the thinking of somebody that something besides belief is required. Something besides mere belief is necessary because here were people that believed, and yet clearly it was not satisfactory. Another one would be this one in Mark 16, 16, from the lips of Jesus Himself. He that believeth shall be saved. That's not what the Lord said. If it had been true that belief alone was necessary, that ought to have been the grammatical presentation of the sentence. But Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. At the very least, that ought to be enough to implant in the person's thinking that something besides belief is required. So we've seen confessions needed, repentance, in other verses is mentioned. In that case, it was baptism. Now, maybe that wouldn't be the first thing to mention in terms of trying to drive home the necessity of baptism, but merely to lead to him to wonder, is something else besides belief needed? One last verse that perhaps would be fair to mention is James 2.19. Interestingly enough, in that verse it says, Demons believe. You might want to think about that. 
even the devil and all of his demonic host, they believe in Jesus. Oh, they fully believe in Jesus. Do you remember on one occasion, they in fact addressed the Master and said, Have you come to torment us before the time? They knew exactly who He was. If belief alone could save, the devil would go to heaven. But clearly the devil won't go to heaven and neither will the demons. More than belief is necessary. James 2 verse number 19. At the very least, that passage together with others should help to solidify in the person's thinking an opportunity for a further study in which those matters could be developed more carefully. Now, John 3.16 is perhaps one to which the person would quickly go. Doesn't that say, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Doesn't that say belief? Well, it does. Does it say belief only? It does not. Biblical belief is a matter of sufficient trust to do that which is instructed by the one in whom one has the belief. It invariably is that way. Every example in the book of Acts in which belief or faith is mentioned is described that way. And so this verse in John 3.16 is a presentation of belief in Christ that emanates in doing what Christ says which includes these other things we've already mentioned. As you and I close that slide, it would perhaps be another verse that the person might mention to you in Acts 16, verse 16. There it was a Philippian jailer. And in fact, on that occasion, as that earthquake had happened that night, and Paul and Silas sprang in before him, you may recall that in that conversation that developed, it was the jailer that asked, What must I do to be saved? We have the following words, and you might want to note them. Acts 16, verse number 16. By inspiration, Paul replied, I'm sorry, it's actually verse number 30. I made a mistake on that slide, so please correct that if you're taking notes. It's not Acts 16, 16, it's Acts 16, verse 30. And brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And some are quick to utilize that passage. Doesn't it say believe? Well, it does. But might you and I never forget, we do not have the full sermon that Paul preached. Look at the next verse. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord. We only have a part of the message, and the part of that message that was included was belief, but Paul said much more to him. And you notice that somewhere between the jailhouse and his house, they baptized that man. How did he know about that? Paul apparently told him. He apparently insisted that he understand that. And so maybe those matters are sufficient to help as we think about the matter of belief. One more question, and tonight's lesson will be yours. Question 7, an individual has asked, The Tennessee Lottery has done a lot of work for education in our state. Would it be a sin to buy lottery tickets, even though those funds go toward education and college funds? Another very good question. The person is asking, so given that the funds that are directed into the Tennessee Lottery, they are earmarked for education, 
they're earmarked not only for all levels of education, some of that even inclusive of college-level education. So this individual is asked, given that that's the place this money is supposed to go, would it be okay to buy a lottery ticket? Look at some of these matters with me. First of all, we understand well from the Word of God that gambling is sinful. Gambling in any regard is wrong. You'll notice just a few things about it that might be mentioned. It's poor stewardship of one's resources. Let's face it, every gambling arrangement is contrived in a way to where the odds are you're going to lose. That's the way the house makes money, or that's the way whatever the establishment is, it's rigged in a way, this artificial game at least, that it's rigged so that you're going to lose far, far, far more often than anybody's going to win. But not only is it poor stewardship, it focuses on the matters of both worldliness together in many ways with covetousness. Did the desire for more carnally, that takes a heightened understanding when we remember Jesus said, Beware of covetousness, Luke twelve fifteen. Furthermore, you'll notice, it quite frankly has a rather sinful view most of the time of other people. I want you to lose so I can win. Does that sound like a Christian disposition? I want to be the one to win, but I know it's going to require you to lose. It doesn't seem as if the Christian mentality of loving your neighbor as yourself is part and parcel of gambling and is part and parcel of the lottery. Perhaps one final thing. The lottery, at least in many ways, has behind it a corrupted principle concerning work ethic. The Bible says to labor with your hands the thing that's good. And the lottery says don't do anything but spend money on a lottery ticket and hope to strike it rich. For all those reasons, gambling is just wrong. And it does not in any way allow the Bible to present us with the end justifies the means. Maybe you and I have heard that slogan. If by some means a good can be perceived coming out of something, then that justifies me doing this other thing that otherwise is wrong. So long as something potentially good comes out of it. That is a very twisted logic, and it's not upheld in the Bible. You and I as Christians appreciate that we always seek to do right, and it's always right to do right. But it is never right to do wrong, period. Furthermore, as you and I close that slide, we would then never endorse the matter of this lottery. Now, we certainly can give thought to those funds in the sense that we are delighted, I suppose, to see good come out of them, but we would never endorse it. Isn't it true that there have been many other things where our government officials have tried to encourage us? If you will, in fact, bring alcohol beverage localized and legal to the place, we'll direct a lot of that money to the education. So we get education, but we've got to put up with whiskey and beer freely available to get it. Notice again, the Bible doesn't endorse that kind of thinking. As you and I close this lesson tonight, we've had seven good questions, and as we've looked at them one by one, I hope that they've been valuable and helpful to consider. And as always, if you have questions, just put them in that box back there in the foyer, and we'll try to have another session and consider those in due course and in due time. 
tonight as we examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. To borrow the language of 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it is our thankful desire that the Word of God has given us in clear terms things that are required of us. As you and I examine ourselves, if you're not in the faith tonight, don't leave this building in that danger. Don't attempt to pillow your head in peace when there is no peace to the wicked, Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21. But tonight, if we could be of help to you, just let us know the way we can be of assistance. Whether perhaps to return to your first love, we'd be delighted to pray to God on your behalf and upon your repentance and confession, the God of heaven has promised to forgive you. This very night, if we could be of help to you, don't delay, but let us know the way we can while together we stand and while we sing.